Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sabinan. I am the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University, and I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. We have new episodes dropping every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. On this episode of Battle Rhythm, uh, our co-host is Lena Tamsetto, who is an assistant professor at McMaster University and in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences. So a very different perspective from the, the political scientists that listeners of Battle Rhythm are used to. How are you doing, Lena? Good, Steve. How are you? How was the Summer Institute? It went really well. That's what's exhausted me. It, we had a full week from you know morning to night, and some of the nights went pretty long. Um and it worked out really well. We had a few speakers who couldn't present or had to present online because of COVID. Right. But we only lost one student along the way uh, to illness, uh, which I think was a good ratio. The presentations were really interesting. We added some new things, like we had a simulation. And would you know it, the People's Republic of China won the simulation. The fun part was we had four players in the simulation that was run by Valens, which is a U.S.-based consulting firm. And it involved multiple scenarios, including Arctic rescue, social media stuff, election stuff. We had four teams. We, had a, we broke down the group into four teams. And it was U.S., China, Canada, and Meta. So we had actually Facebook as a player in that the simulation. Is- that is a bit eerie and fascinating to have Meta as its own entity within this simulation that you were doing. <laughs> yeah, well, they're a major player in the in the space, so I, I really enjoyed watching it from afar. I was not a participant. Mm-hmm. We also had a strategic foresight exercise and a red teaming exercise. So it was a, uh, we added some things from that we hadn't had in mind when we started out, but this was the first in-person one. The last year's was online. The year before that was canceled. So it was nice to see things come to fruition. I was going to say, it must have been so wonderful to have everyone, you know, physically in the same space, because I can only imagine how challenging it is to do simulations like this or other activities uh, where the platform is online. I mean, well, there's a lot of benefits yeah. of being online, but definitely not this. Yes. Well, there's that. And also part of this is it's supposed to be a networking endeavor. It's not only about teaching people about what's going on in the defense security space, but also trying to break down barriers between the sectors. So we have academics and policy officers Mm -hmm. and other people in the defense security community. And so we did various things online last year to try to connect people, but it's much better to do things in person. We could tell at the end of the week that it worked out because I paid the check for the last dinner and they stayed around for another hour or so just chatting. And uh, I think we'll have broken some silos down and built some bridges and all that kind of good stuff. So I really feel good about it. And for our listeners, we'll put out our ad in the winter for next summer's summer's too, which will take place approximately this time in August of 2023. So yeah, we're going to start to work on that this week when we go through what happened this past week and figure out what worked, what didn't work. Very happy with the way it worked out. And this was one of the reasons why we put the grant together in the first place. So that's amazing. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to being part of it next year. Yes. We'd like to bring you down and, and have you get involved. So let's move on to some of the topics of the week in our news. And the first one is Veterans Affairs Canada 
advised one of the veterans seeking help for PTSD and or a traumatic brain injury was receive the offer of assisted dying, medically assistance in dying or made Un unrequested or unbidden. That was the option presented, created a bit of a stir. Since you're much closer to the both mental health area and health in general, uh, what was your reaction to the story? My gut reaction was that it was, you know, really disappointing on so many levels. It's sort of, you know, that pit in my stomach that, you know, why are we presenting this as an option? You know, I'm thinking about how, you know, there's a lack of education, you know, and m most, my first reaction was really the the response of the veterans community. You know, what is their reaction when they when they hear that this has been happening? I did some digging around on this, this news piece and it turns out, it sounds like from the sources uh, that have reported to the various news outlets that this veterans affairs support this person, um, have proposed this to other veterans that they've worked with, which is really, really disheartening. And um, the response from the veterans community has been swift, has been uh, rightly so. And it is really disappointing. I think it speaks to possibly the, you know, the larger issues around how we utilize or how when we go to something like MAID, is it supposed to be an option for things that, you know, can be treatable? I think it speaks to sort of the, the larger issue of, of that. Um, that's sort of the, my, my one reaction. And the other one is the reaction of the veterans community. Well, what and was your reaction to the veterans community to this? I mean, from what I've been seeing, and it didn't surprise me, people were very disappointed. These are, you know, men and women who have sustained significant injury as a result of their service. And they're going to veterans affairs who are the providers of care. Um, and instead of, you know, directing them to different services and resources and services, you know, they're presented with this option to to end their life. So it's really disappointing. And the, the backlash has been swift, like I was saying. Mm -hmm. Veterans are really disappointed. There is already distrust in the system as a yeah. whole. And this is certainly not helping with regards to the reputation of Veterans Affairs and the role that they're supposed to be playing in supporting our folks. Yeah, I would assume that Veterans Affairs would be smart enough about both PTSD and traumatic brain injury that when people come to them for help, that there would be well-established protocols, phone numbers, resources that you go to, now, you know, and because those two things are not unknown for traveling together, you would think that a, a Veteran, Affair, Veteran Affairs Canada employee would have not only resources for people who have one of those conditions, but for resources that have both of those conditions. Absolutely. And... It boggles my mind because MAID is not something that should be discussed between anyone other than, you know, a patient and their primary provider. So meaning mm -hmm. their doctor or their psychiatrist. So this isn't even on the table. This shouldn't be on the table for someone, you know, in a bureaucratic role because Veterans Affairs is not even, they don't have the capacity. That's not even within their, their realm of service to provide this. So yeah, if the veteran were to come to them to say, you know, this is something that I'm considering, this is outside of their scope and they should be redirecting them. But in this particular case, the veteran didn't even bring it up, um, which is really, really disheartening. It shows, you know, a lack of compassion, a lack of training. And as you were saying, just, you know, not having access, not providing the right resources that they have access to. This is this is what they typically are supporting. These are not unusual difficulties that people are coming to Veterans Affairs for services. I guess the challenge is that in any organization 
can have people who don't know what they're doing. The question is whether this is a systematic or systemic problem as opposed to just one person who just screwed up big time or somebody who was, you know, one person who missed their training or didn't pay attention to training or right or whatever. So I guess that's the one thing that's hard to tell. I mean, it's gotten such press that it sounds like the the minister himself has, you know, directed a thorough investigation to get to the bottom of this, to identify how this even happened. But it does speak to the the larger issue of how people who are unfamiliar with me may be using it in their work when they have, you know, quite frankly, no place in, in doing so. Yeah, I have to say it's probably among the many aspects of healthcare in Canada, probably the least understood and the most mythologized that there's a lot of there's enough actors in that space who have incentives to misrepresent what is involved that I'm not surprised there's a lot of confusion. But again, somebody who's who's actually job is to provide resources to veterans should know better than that. Absolutely. They're not even healthcare providers, right? So they're not even the, the people that are providing the direct mental health care. Um, but like you're saying, like they're the ones who direct veterans to resources and connect them with healthcare providers in the community. Um, so, I mean, when we're talking about staying in one's lane, this is, they are well outside of their lane and with repercussion. Well, I'm sure this individual who gave bad advice is, is paying for it. I think something that's probably a lot more systemic is the other story that we wanted to talk about this week, which uh-huh. is that uh, there was a survey that, or a report that came out that showed that a survey of Canada's border agency said that they had witnessed a great deal of discrimination by their colleagues. That one one quarter the frontline employees said that they witnessed a colleague discriminate. Is that number high or low for you? I don't know if it's low or high. I think it's, to me, it's less about the number, but mm-hmm. about the subject matter itself. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how it was presented was very one-dimensional. I think the the survey that got, the, the aspect of the survey that got picked up by the media. Mm-hmm. And yes, you know, discrimination against, you know, who the travelers were based on ethnicity and race and their where they were coming, traveling from. It, it's important, but I think it speaks to sort of the, the wider need to better understand the nature of the study. So for those who are unfamiliar with what the, the survey was, it um, looked at how CBSA is utilizing gender-based analysis plus lens when um, receiving people coming into Canada. So how do they consider gender, ethnicity, race, and all sorts of different identities when they're processing individuals coming in? Um, and so it speaks to the, the wider issue of you know, the importance of gender-based analysis plus um, and how we utilize that in collecting information, interacting with people, informing our policy. And this is something that has been really important to the government of Canada. So, you know, in the research that I do around veterans well-being and military members, this is really important to the research and policy development. And of course, naturally being a, a federal institution, the CBSA should be utilizing GBA plus lens as well. So, I mean, what the media's picked up is, you know, a small sliver of the challenges, but it, to me, it, it is a, I guess, a jumping off point of everything that needs to be done moving forward. So, I mean, I can't speak to what the the current training looks like, mm-hmm. but it's definitely in those recommendations that came out of the survey. I don't know, what's your, what's your take? My take is, uh, I guess for me, the fact that there's discrimination does not surprise me. I think the more important information here in the survey is how what do people do with the d- discrimination they observe? 
the 25% number is not that surprising to me. I think what I'm more focused on is what do people do with that information? And the survey provides conflicting information about how many people reported what they observed. And I think whichever numbers you look at for that, it's not enough. I think that the border agency needs to have a culture where people understand that if they discriminate, that words can get back to their superiors and there'll be consequences. And if only some people do the report, then that's not going to discourage this behavior because any law enforcement agency is going to have a number of people who engage in discrimination. The question is, or, or have tendencies towards engaging in discrimination. The question is, can you create a system where people feel empowered and incentivized to criticize their colleagues? And so I'm just trying to figure out from looking at these numbers, whether those numbers look good or look bad because on one, the one hand, two in five did not report what they observed, but on the other hand, 16% of those who witnessed discrimination reported what they saw. So there's conflicting numbers here I'm trying to understand, but either way, they're, they're not enough that there should be a greater sense that there are consequences. We speak to the culture yeah. of CBSA, right? So I think, you know, in a lot of federal institutions, you know, the ones that I'm most familiar with, there is this call to action to change the culture. So if there is a culture within CBSA and to recognize and report and feel safe in doing that, then I think that is sort of the broader goal, regardless of what they've witnessed. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, with some systems in place where people feel comfortable in reporting and people understand that there are consequences to their actions, I think that is all that is really important in conjunction with you know, GBA plus training, because one of the recommendations is, oh, we need to do a better job with with training. But, you know, we've seen in the past that training alone can't change culture, right? As much as we we hope and wish, and as, you know, as many times as appears in, you know, various reports and recommendations, uh, training alone is not going to shift culture to move it in the direction where people feel safe and comfortable. Yeah, again, it's not just about training. It's not just about recruitment. It's it's the whole thing. And it's how do you create an environment? And this is true for all of our institutions. How do you create an environment where it's not just fear of punishment uh, that drives things? So that's what I tend to focus on is the incentives. Right. But that uh, the norms of the institution are about behaving in the right direction and that anything that violates those norms is, is shameful. Is something that causes people to feel embarrassed, something that they don't want to do, and that others will then, you know, either mentor them or report them, depending on what the the you know relationships are, to make sure that people learn. Yeah, you know, I don't want to have everybody fired from the first time they screw something up, but you know, repeat offenders need to pay, face the consequences of their actions. First time offenders need to be mentored so that way they they understand that what they're doing is wrong. It's like what we're talking about for the CAF. We've had this, you know, ongoing discussion for the past year and a half about culture change in the CAF. Well, it's not the only organization that has a history of discrimination. It's not the only organization that has not developed the right culture for handling an increasingly diverse society. So maybe if the CAF learns anything and D&D learns anything, then those should be those lessons could be translated for similar agencies. The uh, Customs and Borders Agency doesn't do the exact same thing as the military, but I would imagine its recruiting pools are pretty similar. I would imagine its hierarchical nature is pretty similar. I would imagine that it can learn more from the military if the military gets it right eventually 
than they could learn from other other organizations. I absolutely agree. And this is, I mean, because of the similarities that you're talking about in terms of the recruitment pool and, and that sort of thing, but it's also this, they fall under, you know, the government of Canada where the government's really pushing for integrating gender-based analysis plus in the work that gets done, right? People are required to do training, even applying for federal grants, you need to do specific training to ensure that, you know, you have an understanding about uh, gender-based analysis plus. So I think sort of given the taking the learnings from the hopefully successful culture change <laughs> CBS say can apply those, but I think it's, you know, it's very relevant given that everyone's under the same umbrella, the, the, the government of Canada. And then from there, perhaps they can, you know, pass along their culture change learnings to other organizations that are, are struggling with, you know, discrimination. I'm thinking about policing in particular. Sure. And the thing is, is we want, you know, the, the the idea of having GPS plus lens applied to everything is important, but I think that's that's just one thing. That's just one expecting all government organizations to apply it well requires us to ignore the fact that organizations have processes and cultures and all the rest. And it's not only a matter of applying the lens to, you know, the thing directly in front of you, but about what causes organizations to learn and adapt and to change to follow through on the programs and uh, the initiatives of, of, of the politicians. It's one thing to say, hey, let's do GBA plus. It's another thing to actually get them to do it in a way that's productive. Mm -hmm. So really focusing on, you know, the processes, understanding the processes of, of culture change and the culture change being part of, you know, integrating, you know, mm -hmm. a specific perspective. Not just pop process, but politics that culture change, like any other reform, has winners and losers, and those the, the likely losers will resist. Uh, so we've got to figure out ways to either change their incentives so that way they don't see themselves as losing from change, or we do a better job of of empowering politically those folks within organizations that are change agents and forces for change. See, I'm convinced that there are people that are highly qualified in, in culture change. And I've always said that, that maybe these government institutions need to sort of look outside of themselves mm -hmm. to bring in experts of change agents. So I know in the banking industry, it was very gendered. And for whatever they, whatever they did within the banking industry has somehow um, mobilized you know, more equity in, in gender representation in their in their industry. And I'm wondering if government organizations like the CAF and CBSA can bring in those experts that are outside of, right? And they don't have the 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 bias that working within. I'm wondering if they can utilize external experts to help with that. Well that was certainly a big part of the Arbor report was the need for bringing in external experts. And I guess for me, when I think about external experts, I, I think a, a couple of things. One is I worry about throwing money at consultants uh, because uh, yeah. they have their own incentive <laughs> structures, which are yeah. more profit oriented. Uh, and one of the things that Arbor Report did was she complained about some of the consultants recommendations that the CPC was had had um, paid for. Mm -hmm. But the but the second thing is is I wonder how, whether organizations vary on on this next thing, which is 
one of the problems of reforming the military is that the military believes they're the experts in military stuff and that right. they're they're the professionals which means that everybody else is inherently amateurs and so our external experts are not to be listened to and maybe other organizations like the border police don't have that same ethos of professionalism which has consequences mm -hmm. both good and bad but one of the good ones would be that they might be more willing to lead but listen external experts because they don't think that they're the experts to everything that's in their lane maybe or maybe it's a, a problem that that organization and some organizations have but i do think external expertise is required for this i i kind of wonder whether the military for instance would be better off if their chief of personnel was actually a civilian who was actually really smart about personnel as opposed to a random general who mm -hmm. at the end of their career gets to do the personnel thing but that's I'm, a topic for another day <laughs> i'm a big supporter of not reinventing the wheel so this is why i sort of look to you know other industries to say hey you know what have they what have they done you know in certain areas and what learnings can we do but again i totally agree with your comment around paying exorbitant amounts of money to consultants to do this okay well i think we'll leave that there uh hopefully the consultant community will not be too angry at us no uh and our next uh segment we're going to have interviews with two of our undergraduate excellent scholars from last year that uh, Alex Riskla and Safiya Hafid uh, received fellowships from us, helped pay for their, their education. And in exchange, they got to hang out with us. And one of the things we did was we mentored them in applying for Young Minds grants from the Department of National Defense. They each implemented projects. We helped mentor their implementation of the projects. So Sophia had a, a conference on the Pacific and what happens when the United States is declining and China is rising. And Alex had a hackathon, which is that we brought together roughly 25 undergraduates and graduate students from Montreal, Ottawa, and Toronto for one day at NDHQ in Carling and for one day at Carleton to develop ideas to think outside the box towards a couple of, or three, I should say, gray zone or hybrid uh, attacks. Uh, and then they pitched their ideas to panels. So that was Alex's project. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to have a conversation with each of them uh, in our next segment. And I guess, Lena, we'll be talking to you in a month or so when yeah. your turn in the rotation comes up again, Lena. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much, Steve. Really appreciate you joining the Battle Rhythm gang. Uh, and good luck with the start of the semester and all that comes with it. Thank you so much, Steve. Today in Battle Rhythm, we're talking with Sophia Thibodeau-Afid, who is one of our two undergraduate excellence scholars for the year 2021-2022, which means that she has done her tour, which involved uh, a variety of things, including applying for the Young Mind Scholarship uh, grant, getting that grant, and then executing that project, as well as getting an internship 
and hanging out with us for the year. So, Sophia, can you tell us the topic of your event was and why you chose it? So I decided to do a conference because I felt like it was the best place to discuss my topic, which was essentially uh, the new bipolarity. Where does Canada fit in with the U.S.-China rivalry? Well, especially since I had applied for the grant before the war with uh, in Ukraine. Um, I thought it was like one of the most pressing issues at the moment. And I felt like getting experts to speak about it would be really interesting and really useful. Well, it's still an important issue that made the credit out of the news, but it's a long-term challenge for Canada to figure out how to be in between China and, and the United States in the Pacific. Uh, that the two Michaels showed us quite clearly that relations with China are going to be fraught. So you applied for the money, you got it. What were some of the challenges of organizing the project besides you know, having to figure out you know, what, what the hell I was telling you. Uh, other than that, you know, what, any, any difficulties come up or how'd you figure out how to navigate this process? Well, I mean, the most, I think, difficult aspect was finding people to speak at the conference. And in the end, we, I was really lucky. We got some really amazing speakers who were all experts in their topic, who were all very, you know, who brought a really important perspective mm. and who were also able to sort of play off of each other and be in conversation with each other. But um, it didn't seem like that at first. Like I was very worried about just getting enough speakers, you know, you know, sending out emails and, you know, sometimes not getting any responses or getting like late responses. And yes, I think the greatest challenge was um, gathering the speakers. And in fact, for example, we had wanted three speakers for each panel. And in the end, we got three speakers for panel one and then two speakers for panel two and three, which again was ended up working very well, but, um, you know. Sure, what were the three panels? So the panel one was the decline of American hegemony. Panel two was China's current foreign policy tactics. And panel three were Canadian foreign policy options in the aftermath of the AUKUS agreement. Okay, and what did you learn from uh, each of these panels? Well, I mean, I learned a tremendous amount. And I think what was most interesting is how, like, even though you'd think that like, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine had like eclipsed this, it actually ended up being an important talking point. Like, you know, I think a lot of the speakers touched on the uh, implications of like, uh, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine to like, you know, China's potential invasion of Taiwan, right? Like mm -hmm. how does that, you know, influence China's decision uh, making regarding Taiwan? And um, I think that was the most interesting aspect that I learned from uh, the conference. And it was also just really interesting hearing about like, you know, the fact that Canada in the past, you know, had done pretty well under a bipolar system, you know, like when it was, you know, the, during the Cold War, but uh, we hadn't updated our strategy. And so we're kind of unprepared at the moment to deal with the current situation. So I thought that was also really interesting and an important uh, point, especially when we're talking about, you know, Canada's foreign policy and, you know, Canada's foreign policy options. So given what you learned at your event, what would you recommend for this or any government to do in response to the decline of the United States and the rise of China? Well, first, I think, uh, as like many of the speakers said, we, an important aspect is having a very thorough and clear foreign policy towards, I think, the Asian region, but especially like China, addressing um, issues such as trade, um, security, like I think one of the things that was mentioned a lot in the conference was the Huawei. So I think having a clear 
policy on, you know, foreign corporations, you know, technology would also be helpful. And I think also um, a government stance on Taiwan, because that's also like really important. (laughs) And that was also mentioned uh, multiple times by many speakers in the conference. Well, I think that those are uh, important priorities that the government should be focusing on. Should they should be developing policies in these areas? Uh, so uh, look forward to getting your briefing note that will help provide advice to the government on how they should respond to these challenges of these tough currents that uh, that are going to be shaping the Pacific uh, over the next 10 or 20, 30 years. So would you recommend for others to apply for the Young Minds Scholarship? Uh, definitely. I think it's a great opportunity. Like, first of all, the application process is like really interesting. And I think I'll really think about, you know, current events and Canada's role in them. You have the chance to do something incredible. For example, I did a conference and my fellow undergraduate excellent scholar did a hackathon. And I think I'm really proud that I was able to hopefully create a resource for you know future you know people interested in this topic. So I think it's definitely worth it, but it is, you know, hard work. And uh, was this the best part of the CDSN undergraduate excellent scholarship? The- working with us on this or were there other parts of uh, the scholarship that that you? Well, I think the best part was just the people who were part of, you know, offering the CDSN scholarship. So for example, you and Kaha and everyone else, I think that was the best part, just learning from you guys and, you you know, all the help just uh, from, you know, the internship and Young Minds, I think it's just, that was the best part is having this support and like these, um, these experiences being offered. That's great. Well, we really benefit from having you be our scholar for the year, the undergraduate excellence scholar for the year. You came to our capstone event and asked good questions of all the panelists, uh, which is really helpful because we didn't have that many people in the room given the COVID restrictions. And so you really gave that event uh, more depth and you really helped those people you know, think through their projects and you know, presentations. And so that was really valuable for us. It was uh, we're looking forward to seeing you hopefully join us at the reception during the middle of Summer Institute in, in August, and we'll see you at IUS Canada in October. Now you're stuck with us. You, know, you thought you'd just get some money and, and all that, but now you get to be part of uh, the CDSN family. So that means that you'll be subject to my whims for, for, for a good uh, year and a half or two more years. Well, that doesn't seem like such a bad bargain. <laughs> I don't think so at all. I'm very glad that you applied for this scholarship, and I'm glad that... Uh, that you you took advantage of it to to really do a lot of different things for with you know to pursue your interests over the past year. Glad that the internship is working out this summer, and uh, good luck with the move to Ottawa. Thank you so much for all your kind words and for everything. Well, have a great summer. Thank you. You too. Today on Battle Rhythm, we're talking to Alex Rizkala. He is one of our undergraduate excellence scholars who received a Young Minds scholarship, that is money from the Department of National Defense to run a project. And that project was a hackathon that we helped him out with in May. And so we brought him on to talk to him about his experiences. So Alex, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Thanks so much for having me. So Alex, what got you into thinking about doing a hackathon? So I kind of come from the, the world of Model United Nations. So a lot of a lot of simulation, a lot of kind of, I wouldn't say necessarily fake scenarios, but plausible scenarios that haven't necessarily yet existed um, and kind of produces a lot of tangible policy solutions 
So while uh, when you guys came to me and proposed the Minds Hackathon, uh, sorry, the, the Minds program, I said, what better than to get a bunch of youth in a room to kind of debate. So that's kind of where I came from. And a hackathon, I guess, is like, a, a, it's a short period of time where groups of people, in our case, it was students, uh, can kind of hammer out a problem in a short time period. So that time crunch is kind of where the whole hackathon idea comes from. So what did you hack about? So we offered three different topics, three different flavors, if you if you want. So the first one was defense in the Arctic. So uh, it was a foreign patrol in the Arctic. Uh, I'll get to the problems with that later. Our second topic was a cyber attack on a hospital network. It wasn't defined where, but it was assumed to be a, a pretty major city. And then finally, it was a disinformation campaign in a future election. So in our case, it was the 2020. I believe, election. So. And I guess what these things have in common is, is these are sort of like untraditional attacks, gray zone warfare, hybrid attacks, what do you want to call it? And so the, I guess the idea was we don't really know how well to deal with unconventional situations and you wanted to have out-of-box thinking about these unconventional situations. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, exactly. And uh, also the Department of Defense kind of outlined different topics that they wanted us to, that they wanted the, the mines uh, recipients to kind of deal with. So gray zone was a whole section unto itself. And you learned the magic art of grant writing, which is pay attention to the instructions. And when they say we're interested in X, you say, I'd love to study X. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, uh, it's supposed to be straightforward, but uh, it's kind of, it's very intensive. Yes. Well, uh, hey, uh, grant writing is something that you may end up doing a lot in, in, in your career. So it's nice to, to get some out of your way and learn learn the dark art. So we talk about hackers. Who are these, these people? So in our case, the hackers were undergraduate students with a few graduate and PhD students sprinkled in there. So usually it is people uh, in, in like different hackathons, uh, such as DEF CON and whatnot. It's it's usually these like industry experts and leaders, but we kind of wanted to, to put a spin on that and get people who are outside of the security or who were early in their security career to, to hack these problems. Great. And so where'd you find these people? Did you go out, you are on the streets, just pulling people in from the streets? Well, how did this work out? So it's just a lot of sending emails and asking people if they're interested. So one of them is is actually someone that I, I kind of randomly met, asked him if he wanted to come out, and he did. And then other than that, uh, you helped a lot sending emails to UFT and U Ottawa and Carleton, seeing if any of the faculties were interested. And then on my end, I kind of went to recruit McGill students and uh, University of Montreal students, since that was where uh, where I was located. Yeah, we got a good mix of students from uh, the neighborhood. We, we had to economize on travel so we're going to fly people in from vancouver or halifax we had a critical mass of people from from montreal ottawa and toronto so uh we got a good mix and uh they're a pretty energized lot you brought these folks together you gave them these three scenarios was one of the scenarios easier to to play around with was one of them harder i i guess the like the hardest one was the uh was the arctic scenario the cyber patrols in the arctic while writing the background guide i didn't think that the participants would go so in depth as to pull out different UN documents and saying, oh, well, if they're a hundred meters off of this line, well, that's uh, that's a completely different scenario. So once they, oh, it was kind of an oversight on, on my end, I guess, while uh, drafting everything to, I then go into enough specifics. So let's get to know for next year, if it does happen, obviously. If not, there was also some uncertainness about the cyber attacks what was a hospital network, what constituted a hospital network. And so I think there was just a bit of lack of clarification, but once we got that out of the way, pretty happy with the results that everyone put out during the presentation. So yeah, it's just a question of, of clarity, I guess. And what were sort of the 
big punchlines that the groups produce that that you know you'd end up conveying to the government what we should be doing in these certain scenarios. One that really stood out to me, and for example, the Arctic one was the I think it was six or seven kind of tiered plan if there was an attack and how to escalate it. I thought that was very clearly presented, and even the judges panel seemed really pleased with that in the uh, final comments. Mm -hmm. If not, there were some pretty out there and interesting ideas that I really liked. One of them was quantum computers to deal with this information. I mean, it's pretty out there. It's pretty interesting. I mean, it, it kind of shows how these students have an eye towards the future, not necessarily relying on on past solutions. They're really kind of pushing the boundaries on how we can like tackle these problems. What was sort of the biggest surprise along the way? Did the whole um, enchilada of applying for this money, getting it? using it, having the event, looking backwards at it. Is there anything that surprised you pleasantly or negatively either way? I think the biggest surprise was how quickly the students got engaged after 10, 20 minute kind of icebreaker session. They already like ideas on the board by the time, like I said, okay, go ahead. So it's like they already knew each other. They were already working in teams, breaking up the topic and, and all that. So kind of the passion behind, like from the participants part on the whole project was, was phenomenal. I thought it would take at least maybe, I don't know, three, four hours for them to warm up to each other, but they're right into it so yeah they were super uh, into it you had a really good group of, of energized folks they came to play and i had no role in, in this besides watching the different rooms operate and then seeing them the next day pitch their presentations the way we did it was we had one day meeting where they brainstormed and the second day where they pitched the ideas to the panels was there anything on the pitch day that stands out to you in terms of stuff that happened that was surprising interesting i would say that the the judges were were phenomenal the questions they were super engaged the questions they were asking were pretty in depth as well so that's good. Uh, it truly showed that they were interested in and in kind of what the participants were presenting. So that was great. Also did want to mention that the welcome that we got again was amazing. Goodie bags we had also three or four folks from DND kind of helping and guiding the students throughout the, uh, along the way. So I mean, being able to set time aside for students is great. Like they're really important people as well. So it made us kind of feel great. And I was happy to be alongside because they took us on a tour of the memorials from the Afghanistan mission. So that was sort of at the end of the day at NDHQ's Carling campus. And it's hard to get into that because it's surrounded by the, the headquarters. So you have to actually get past the gate. And so your hackathon, abetted by the folks at ADM Public Affairs, allowed me to then get inside the wire and be part of that tour of, of the memorial. So uh, I, I was really thankful that you organized this because it gave me an opportunity. It gave everybody else an opportunity to see that. I'd seen those pieces in Afghanistan, a country that was not supposed to be named Dubai, supposed to be a secret where we were based. I already knew Camaraj was in Dubai. So I've seen them before, but not the entire set because I saw it in 2007 and obviously people were killed after 2007. But to see how it was presented and to get a sort of a, an encounter with that, I think it was really moving. So thank you for organizing this and thank you for ADMPA for jumping in there because it allowed us to have an experience that a lot of people can't get. So the big question then is, is, what are you doing next? Oh boy. So in less than a month, I'm flying off to London to go to school. So it's going to be a one-year master's program in intelligence and international security. Already kind of met my classmates. It's very diverse. There's people from all over the world. So for sure going to be some interesting perspectives on international security. And uh, and then we'll see where the world takes me. That's great. I'm jealous. London is a great place to be. The folks at King's College are fantastic. Uh, it sounds like a really cool program. Uh, hopefully you can use your experience in, with us to uh, organize subversive hackathons uh, about how to undermine their program and, and get everybody get A's and all that kind of good stuff. Are you going to use your time in London a chance to sort of voyage throughout the rest of Europe while you're there? Uh, yeah, fingers crossed. If, if flights... Don't lose baggages anymore. I might uh, <laughs> consider it, but yeah, oh. I already have a few countries on my bucket list. So fantastic. Well, I wish you luck in your travels and thanks, thanks so for uh, running this whole thing for us. It was a great boon to the CDSN to meet all these 
hotshot undergrads to be exposed to your your ideas and to hang out with you for a year. So don't be a stranger. And when you come back from the UK, if, if you decide to come back, let us know what you're doing and, and how we can fold you into our, our future endeavors. For sure. Thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm.